Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalist Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it's Friday, March 1st, uh, 2024. Uh, I'm going to read you a, a story that's in the front page of today's business section for the New York Times. Uh, I know we don't talk a lot of business news uh, on this show, but um, I have a political reason for raising this story. Uh, so it's a story about a fight that's happening um, amongst uh, shareholders with Walt Disney. Okay, now you're going, Ben, what are you talking about? Shareholders, Walt Just calm down and listen to what I'm saying. Uh, there's an activist, what they call an activist investor. This is capitalism, ladies and gentlemen. This is just raw capitalism on display. Uh, so they're what they call an activist investor by the name of Norman, excuse me, of Nelson Peltz. Uh, is teaming up with other investors to uh, get shareholders to elect him and a couple other uh, people to the board of directors of Walt Disney. And then they essentially want to take control of Walt Disney and shape uh, its future, probably firing a whole bunch of people. That's generally what activist investors do. They take seize control of a country and fire a bunch of people and then hope that resulting uh, by firing people, uh, it has the perverse effect of raising the shareholder price, the stock price. So, uh, they say, hey, we're running a country better because a bunch of people got fired. And, of course, then uh, they, they appeal to the states for unemployment compensation. So someone picks up the, 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 the money uh, somewhere, probably a taxpayer somewhere. The part that I find intriguing uh, and interesting and relevant of sorts to, uh, uh, to current politics is that uh, Peltz, the man who's leading this charge, is 81 years old. 81 years old. This dude's a billionaire. He's been in the business game for years and years and years. He's been an active investor uh, going back to the 70s. I'm like, we're questioning right now whether Joe Biden's too old to run the country. Uh, and yet, 81-year-old <laughs> uh, Nelson Peltz is leading a charge against Walt Disney. I don't think anybody has questioned his age. He's trying to get a guy named Bob Iger fired who's 73 years old. So I guess age is all relative, ladies and gentlemen. Capitalism, what a trip. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guests 
to introduce himself. We're going to have a conversation having absolutely nothing to do with what I just talked about. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Andrew Olson. Um, I'm from Kokomo, Indiana. I've worked in campaigns throughout the Midwest, and I've had the great pleasure of being on this program before and analyzing elections and talking about how we go about the business of politics. Yes. Uh, thank you for returning, Andrew. Uh, and on this show, he's known as our very own Steve Kernacki. Uh, he takes a deep dive the way Karnacki does on MSNBC. Andrew, you were on a show once with me and my uh, dear friend Monroe Anderson, and he was the one who uh, said, this kid is just like Steve Karnacki. Uh, and so we've been calling you that ever since. I reached out to you immediately um, when I was starting to come thinking about the, the Michigan primary. Uh, it was such a pivotal primary, sort of as a barometer where the electorate is right now. Uh, and not just the Democratic Party, but the Republican Party as well. Uh, and well, let's start by talking about, obviously, the impact uh, on the Democratic Party, but we get into the Republican Party. And folks, a lot of you listeners out there, this is conversation for really the folks who love the deep dive into politics. So I apologize to all you rookies out there who really don't follow politics and don't take the deep dive, but you want to learn where the electorate is. You want to learn where the country is. You want to learn the sort of the forces at play uh, in politics today that will shape uh, November's election. Uh, enjoy this conversation. Um, all right, uh, Andrew. So the issue with the Democrats uh, with a Mich Michigan's uh, primary was not a comp contest against Joe Biden by another candidate. Uh, there were two fringe candidates in the race running against him for the, uh, in, the uh, in that contest, but the uncommitted. And in Michigan, they have they allow voters to either vote for the candidates uh, on the ballot, uh, in this case, Joe Biden, Marianne Williamson, and Dean Phillips, or vote uncommitted. Before we get started, do you know of any other states that do that, that have that option? There are other states, am I correct? Illinois is just not one of them. Yes. Uh, the main example I can think of is in Nevada, you have the option to vote for any of the candidates who stand for it. And then there is also a none of the above option. Um, that's kind of a more humiliating situation if you lose that because uncommitted in theory you have somebody else you want if you if you've are if you're losing to none of the above it's like you might as well just drop out because people are just not having it so um yeah so the, there is that example but otherwise it's pretty rare i know in indiana and wisconsin there's not really that option either so that's kind of an oddity to michigan uh all right so uh an oddity to Michigan. And by the way, Andrew has worked in political campaigns in Michigan, so he knows a thing or two about Michigan. Uh, all right. So uh, the uncommitted, uh, there was an organized effort in Michigan um, by activists uh, and leftists, uh, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, to uh, bring out a strong, uncommitted vote uh, as weighing a sending a message to President Biden that he had gone too far in embracing Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel and that he should show, as they say, a little more nuance uh, in America's attitude uh, toward the war in the Middle East, particularly as Israel is bombing Gaza and so many civilians in Gaza, including children, are being killed every day. And so the time had come for America to rethink its foreign policy. That was essentially the underlying uh, motivation for the. Um, uh, uncommitted vote, like a drive. I can't recall 
in recent history, a drive for uncommitted vote in Michigan. Uh, Andrew, am I correct in that? I can't ever recall an organized effort in Michigan to pump up the uncommitted vote, either in the Republican or Democratic uh, nomination. Am I missing something or is am I correct in that? The last time we saw something along these lines was back in the 2008 primary. There was an issue where Michigan had gone too early in the cycle for the DNC's liking. And so Barack Obama was not a listed candidate on the ballot in their primary. Hillary Clinton was. And so you had a situation where Hillary voters were showing up in the primary to vote for Hillary, but the DNC sanctioned the event and said that because you guys are going so far ahead of schedule, we're not going to count your delegates. Hillary voters show up for Hillary. Because Obama's not on the ballot, Obama voters show up and vote uncommitted. And so you end up in a situation, um, I don't have it exactly in front of me, but I, I think it was something like she got a bit over 50%, he, uh, uncommitted got a little over 40%. But that was kind of a odd situation um, because of party politics there. Um, there's not really been anything that I can recall of this scale where you have specific communities who uh, for various different reasons, have grievances with the standing candidates and are voting uncommitted as a result. In this particular case, I compare it to Obama's 2012 re-election primary as a baseline, where he did not have any other named opponents on the ballot. It was just Barack Obama and uncommitted, if you showed up that primary. And uncommitted got around 10% of the vote on that occasion. In any given election, you're going to have some level of protest vote if people have any option to do so. Any incumbent member of Congress, even if they've not done anything wrong, um, if they're just doing their job and things are going along, you know, there's there's people who weren't part of that person's coalition getting into office. They may have some grievance over something else. So in those kinds of primaries, it's not unusual to see a protest vote candidate getting somewhere between 10 to 20 percent of the vote. If an incumbent's getting over 80%, that's usually a good sign that their coalition is pretty well intact. There might be a risk of some splintering, but for the most part, it's not in a position where you necessarily need to be worried about the general election. So when we look at these Michigan results, uh, Biden ended up cracking just above 80%. He was between about 80 to 81%, which I think is a pretty healthy showing on the whole. The uncommitted vote was, um, it had a pretty good geographic spread throughout the state, but it was especially concentrated in a couple spots like Ann Arbor, Dearborn, Hamtramck, some spots like that in the broader Detroit metro. What's significant about it is to get delegates to the Democratic National Convention this summer, you have to clear 15% statewide for certain statewide delegates. And then at the congressional district level, if you're exceeding 15% at the district level, you can also get delegates that way. And the uncommitted vote, as I was looking at it here, they got about 13.2%. So they came just a little short statewide for securing delegates. But the critical thing is that at the congressional district level, they, uh, the uncommitted campaign did actually pick up a couple delegates because in uh, the 6th district, which is centered on Ann Arbor, they got about 17% of the vote. In the congressional district that contains Dearborn, they got about 17%. So when they go to their convention, their state convention this summer, um, and, and, and they're working through the delegate process, they're going to have a couple uncommitted delegates. And how that plays out is to be determined. We'll see. 
But the short end of it is that in the Ann Arbor district, Ann Arbor is the home of University of Michigan. Um, you see this in pretty much any Big Ten uh, college towns or Champaign-Urbana is very similar in Illinois. Uh, very progressive-leaning Democratic community, regularly a lot of left-leaning protest votes. Um, there, there's a whole litany of reasons that some folks in this area might think that Joe Biden isn't progressive enough on XYZ issues. And so they've cast protest votes for uncommitted to voice their concern that their concerns are being met. And then when you look uh, further into the Detroit Metro, um, Dearborn, especially East Dearborn, where you have a very high Arab American population, a similar situation in Hamtramck, which is centered right in the middle of Detroit. Um, you have a lot of voters who are upset about how the Israel-Palestine situation has been unfolding. They feel that um, the American government has perhaps given uh, not enough concern for the people of Palestine, the people of Gaza, that they disagree with the approach that the military has been taking. Um, there's also some strains of social conservatism that have been popping up, which I can delve into a little more. But for a bunch of different reasons, they are not feeling aligned behind Joe Biden. He, uncommitted was getting a majority of the vote in um, Hamtramck and East Dearborn, especially. So there was there was a lot of discontent there as well. So on the whole, I would say that Biden's performance overall in the state was very strong, but there are a few specific pockets in the state where he should probably be spending the next eight months really doing a lot of outreach. All right, we're going to take a deep dive uh, into uh, almost each one of these districts that uh, Andrew already alluded to. Uh, and, um, but before I do that, uh, I'm going to ask you about the general spin that has put, put out, uh, and, and wait, and let me just say this up front. We've talked a lot. I say this every time this conversation comes up. So I just, I'm going to say it again. We talk a lot in this show, uh, about the war in Gaza, uh, and, um, I, just for the record, uh, I, and I don't know if you know, if you know this, but big, I was a big proponent still in a ceasefire, uh, and we had a debate discussion here in, in Chicago, and the city council voted to endorse the ceasefire. It was part of a resolution. It took the mayor to break a tie. He, he, the mayor actually had to cast a vote. Um, I'm always reluctant to, to talk about the political ramifications of the horror that's going on in, in Gaza right now, but I feel like I've not dedicated enough time to the political ramifications. So I'm just going to put aside for the moment <laughs> the issue of what's happening in Gaza and just talk about the political ramifications for this particular show. Um, all right, there, I just felt I had to say that. Um, so both sides, a general spin before we take the deep dive is interesting. I always, after an election, love enjoy listening to the spin because it's with the, the propaganda. Uh, and uh, so the Biden forces are saying, oh, my God. I mean, there was organized opposition. They only got 13.3% of the vote without organized opposition. There was 10% uncommitted against uh, Barack Obama in 2012. I think we did pretty good. Uh, and then uh, Rashida Tlaib and other activists who are at the forefront of the uncommitted vote were going, oh, my God, we only spent $200,000 and we got 100,000 people to vote uncommitted. That just shows you we're a powerful force. It was a tremendous victory uh, in uh, for our, our, our movement. Um, how do you view it when you hear those conflicting uh, interpretations of what went down on Tuesday? Uh, do you do you lean e e toward either side in terms of the significance of the vote? 
Yeah, I and, and to your point, I think that it is important for us at this moment to discuss the electoral aspect of it just because these are our elections that are unfolding. You know, we're engaging in the process of selecting our leaders who are um, – one, we're casting judgment on our leaders and our reflection on whether we think they're doing a good or bad job right now. So it, the elections kind of give us a, a real world poll to assess like how people are feeling about this right now. And it's giving us the opportunity to reflect on the situation and pick the leaders who we think are most fit to carry the issue forward into the future. So I think um, the focus is always most importantly on the on the ground situation and figuring out how how we can work through this. Um, the politics is always on the back end of it. So in terms of the outcome, I think it's kind of in this sweet spot where both sides can claim victory, if that makes sense, because, um, you know, people who might be more uh, dismissive of some of these concerns might say, oh, well, you know, Joe Biden, he's he's well over 80 percent there. They only got like two delegates. It doesn't really matter. And the people who were organizing this effort can say, you know, even if we didn't hit 15% statewide, we were registering tons of voters throughout a lot of these cities where we were on the ground organizing people. I think they only, I think they only started organizing this about three weeks before the election actually happened. And so this wasn't a long planned effort on, on the part of the people that were campaigning for this is put together uh, kind of late in the game. And they still seem to have a very significant impact in terms of voting behavior on the ground, especially when it's in these targeted areas. So I think that both sides of this equation, like the, the Biden camp and the uncommitted camp have something that they can kind of hang their hat on and say that we we've spoken, we've made our message heard. And hopefully as the year goes on, um, both of those camps can kind of come together and talk about what steps might be appropriate for our government to take um, what steps would be appropriate for the Biden campaign to take as we move into November and just kind of having some level of, uh, engagement. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. There's uh, a justification, I suppose, for each side to celebrate. Uh, although if I were Biden, I would not be celebrating. All right. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's take a deep dive, uh, into some of the uh, individual districts. We'll start with, uh, Hamtramck. Uh, you mentioned it. Uh, this is fascinating. This is interesting. Uh, so the vote out of Hamtramck will be viewed in terms as a uh, pro, uh, a vote in opposition to uh, Joe Biden's uh, Middle East policy and his endorsement of Be- Benjamin Netanyahu uh, and the Israel assault in Gaza. Um, but if you pay any attention to uh, politics in Michigan, you know that that Hamtramck area is socially conservative. And I, it was about a year or so ago, uh, before October 7th, the Hamas attack in Israel, before that raised uh, the issue of uh, United States foreign policy with Israel, uh, Hamtramck passed an ordinance that was viewed as anti-gay ordinance. Uh, they banned any flag to be flown on a public building uh, in Hamtramck, which is just outside of New York, uh, New York, just outside of Detroit. Uh, and um, it's actually an on view very Detroit. much it's entirely surrounded by it. So it's that is correct. Surrounded very, by very, yes. very unique community surrounded by a very different community. That is correct. It's embedded in, uh, uh, in, in, in Detroit. It used to be mostly Polish and now it's mostly, uh, I think Palestinian American, uh, Muslim. Uh, anyway, so, MAGA Republicans were saying we can we have we are building a connection 
with Muslim American communities. Look at this. Uh, this I remember the articles uh, in the newspaper talking about how the, that enclave would be a base for Trump, Andrew. I'm not making this up. This is before October 7th. There's like, this will be a new terrain for Donald Trump. And I remember the protests uh, at, this, or not the protests, but at the hearings uh, that officials had on that issue. And like I always say, if you close your eyes, you're not looking at the speaker. You would think it was a MAGA guy from Alabama talking uh, as opposed to, to a resident of Detroit uh, t- talking about how offended they are by a, the, like the gay, the gay flag and uh, how they didn't want that on a public building. So talk a little bit. What was the, the uncommitted vote uh, in um, Hamtramck? Uh, and how much do you, you think was opposition to uh, Israel uh, and how much do you think it was just a genuine drift toward the Republican Party and the party of Trump? I think it was a combination of both, um, not necessarily one over the other. The The context I would give to this is that if we go back a quarter century, I won't go into all the things then, but if you go back a quarter century uh, around the 2000 election, generally speaking in America, the, the, the Arab population, the Muslim population in America, especially as you saw it in the Detroit Metro, was usually a Republican-leaning constituency. Um, they aligned more with the Republican Party on cultural issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, um, uh, gender identity, things like that. And then after 9-11 happened, because I, I think George Bush is winning a solid majority of the vote in these populations. And then 9-11 happens and you see this significant shift in the country where the Republican Party, um, not entirely, but a lot of it embraced a lot of Islamophobia in the wake of those attacks. And it negatively polarized the Arab populations, Muslim populations of the country toward the Democratic Party to the point where um, places like Dearborn uh, had very strong votes for George Bush in 2000. But then they were voting very heavily for John Kerry in the 2004 election, and they've been Democrats ever since. Since the war on terror has ended, you know, we, we've ended our conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's not driven the discourse as much. There's still Islamophobia present within the Republican Party, but the issues are shifting to more uh, cultural lines, um, uh, standards of liberal democracy, things like that. And so you're starting to see some of this Arab and Muslim population breaking away from the Democratic Party. So when we look at Michigan from 2018 to 2022, uh, in 2022, when I was working there managing a Senate campaign, we had an abortion amendment on the ballot because Dobbs had taken away abortion rights in America. And there was an amendment on the ballot to restore Roe in the state constitution. And there was a significant uh, set of this population that was voting against that amendment. Um, and also Dearborn was having these, uh, very heated, uh, school board meetings where residents were coming in wanting to ban a whole host of books that discussed LGBTQ people. And so there was a significant rightward cultural shift over the last couple of years to the point where, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor, she was elected in 2018. She was reelected in 2022 and she improved in most of the Detroit Metro, but she saw her margins decline in these communities on these cultural issues over that time. And so even before October 7th, we've seen 
this kind of steady rightward shift among some of these voters. And in the period since, I think that's only continued. So I would suspect that Joe Biden will still win these populations overall, but his margins will probably see some level of decline for these reasons. Mm. All right. And uh, so was the the uncommitted vote higher in Dearborn, as nearly you could tell, in Hamtramck than it was? Was that the highest uh, portion of uncommitted vote, uh, sheer percentage of uncommitted vote uh, in the state? That's correct. Um, the Hamtramck and Dearborn, um, especially Eastern Dearborn's kind of finicky because the East half of the city is very heavily Arab population. The West half, uh, is more of the old school white population that's lived there for a long time, but it was definitely highest in those regions. We were looking at upwards of 50, 60% of residents were voting outright uncommitted. Joe Biden was down in like the teens or 20, maybe 30 percent in those regions there. So it was a very decisive outcome in favor of uncommitted in those communities. Uh, All right. Uh, And so let's move now to what I lovingly call lefties. Uh, And I've been around lefties my entire life, Andrew. Uh, I know the political breed very well. Uh, And as such, I always get into arguments. I've been having arguments with Democrats for years. Uh, regarding the uh, tw- 2000 election. I'll just give you a little sense of this one. This is before you were born, of course, uh, and Al Gore uh, versus George Bush. And so many of my Dem friends are just still mad at Ralph Nader voters in Florida. Uh, and they blame <laughs> Ralph Nader voters for that loss. And I try to tell them, and it's like talking to a rock. You can't get it through. You can't get through it. You don't understand lefties. They're not going to, they're not, they, they hate the Dems almost as, no, maybe more than they hate Republicans. So you're not going to get a real hardcore lefty to vote for a Dem. You're not going to guilt trip them to vote for a Dem. You're not going to, they're not going to feel bad because Bush won and, and uh, Gore lost because they voted. They just, they view, they have antipathy toward both parties. As Ralph Nader would say, there's no difference between the two parties. He kind of reflects the attitude uh, that many Dems have, uh, excuse me, that many lefties have. So the notion, I know, like, I know the hardcore lefties, they didn't vote for Obama. They didn't vote for Hillary and they didn't vote for Biden and they're not going to vote for Biden in 2024. (laughs) So, you know, so now I want to know how did, and yet they participate in Democratic primaries, okay? So they're a little different than the Hamtramck voters who are moving toward uh, Trump. I don't think lefties will ever go for Trump in large, you know, I don't think they're going <laughs> to, I mean, so how did, when you go look at where there's strong bastions of people on the left, the leftiest portions of, uh, of Michigan, how did they vote on, uh, the matter of Biden versus uncommitted? So I think that you're correct on this point that there's, always going to be some chunk of the quote-unquote Democratic Party that views itself on the very far left end of the spectrum that is always, it's almost like vying for attention more than anything else. You know, they're, they're, they're wanting the attention to earn their vote. And like to some degree, I understand it, you know, because your vote is your voice and you want to maximize it. But at, at a certain point, you know, any time that the party is having to chase after um, 
the base voter, that's time that you may not necessarily be working on persuasion with the swing voter. And so it's kind of up to the campaign to decide what's the best use of our time in terms of outreach and messaging uh, to make sure that we can get a majority of the vote in this state or that we're getting a majority vote in any given district. I think that that's a calculation that the Biden campaign is always making at different points. And they've done a lot of good things for, um, you know, reducing student loan debt for millions of people in this country, if not outright canceling it. Um, you know, the um, Inflation Reduction Act, you know, that did so much to um, move us in the right direction on the environment. There's so much more to do, of course. But, you know, there, there, there's a case to be made that they've been acting on a lot of things that uh, progressive members of the Democratic Party feel very passionate about. And there's always going to be some segment of the electorate that's, like I said, you know, there's always a protest vote. There's always going to be 10 to 15 percent that no matter what you do, you know, if, if if you cater to that 10 to 15 percent, there may be another 10 to 15 percent that gets upset about what you're doing for that group. So it's just kind of a balancing act. And I think that the Biden campaign will probably calculate that they're doing all these things on progressive issues over here, they're going to do what they can to win the vote here. And then if they're not able to win somebody over here, they're just going to move on to the next person and figure out um, where they can find their next vote. Uh, and so for instance, so when you said uh, Ann Arbor, let's take a look, just give me some numbers from out of Ann Arbor, whatever the County that is. Uh, Ann Arbor is where the university of Michigan is. I'm thinking of like 10 lefties. I know who live in that general area. Uh, who would uh, I can just hear them right now in my mind. I'm not voting for Joe Biden. No way. Uh, and it, they would be saying that even if there was uh, no war right now in the, the Middle East. So roughly what was the uncommitted vote uh, in that neck of the woods? Yes. So uh, Joe Biden did still decisively win um, Ann Arbor. It was... Um, I would need to check the exact number here, but we're, we're looking at somewhere on the order of uh, maybe about 80% of the vote, something like that. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it was still a decisive win there, but the uncommitted vote was higher um, in, in that. Uh, Washtenaw County is where Ann Arbor is at. So um, they, there, there was a lot of uncommitted vote through that region. It was just, uh, it just happened to be a little higher and cross the threshold. Um, I, I believe I might have seen that it was as high as about 25% in the city of Ann Arbor. So it was mar mar markedly higher than most of the metro. Okay. Uh, now, how much is that, uh, would you think, the hardcore uh, lefties who are never going to vote for Joe Biden? And how much is that what uh, Joe Biden people tend to say? People who wanted to send us a message but will vote for us in November. Yeah, I, I'm not too worried about a significant progressive sponsor vote. I think that um, younger folks who may not totally remember a time before Donald Trump may not fully appreciate it. And this is something that I kind of feel needs more hammered home into older folks who've been through the process. Um, you know, high schoolers, you know, 18 year olds who are going to vote for the first time this year. You know, when Donald Trump came on the scene, they were like nine or 10 you know, our, our youngest voters today do not remember a time before Trump. They don't really remember the Obama years. So um, in that sense, our politics have been completely transformed for a whole generation. But even in that context, I think um, the sense of danger is probably palpable enough to enough voters that they're, they, they have the good sense that 
this is the choice. You've got Biden or Trump are just going to redo the 2020 election, basically. And that for better or for worse, however all that has played out, these, these are the options. And so you have to make a choice between the two of them. And I think that most voters are going to behave rationally and they're going to, for the most part, most voters are just going to pick the exact same option that they picked four years ago. Yeah, man, that's a thought. I hadn't, when you said that, man, if you're an 18-year-old voter, uh, you were born in the year 2006, all you know is Trump and Biden. Damn. <laughs> yeah. What a world uh, that you have grown up in. Uh, all right. Uh, how about how uh, the uncommitted did in uh, black precincts? I'm talking around Wayne County, around the city of Detroit. Uh, how did uncommitted do there? Um, uncommitted was a negligible presence there. Um, Detroit was one of Biden's strongest municipalities in the state. Um, I would say that, um, having talked with some of my friends there who, who know a lot more about it than me, the basic point was that, um, black voters approach, uh, protest voting differently. They just, the, the choice for black voters usually isn't Democrat or Republican or third party. It's usually Democrat or they don't show up. If, if they feel like they want to protest a candidate that you'll, you'll just see a dramatic decline in turnout. So um, it didn't look like there was much of a significant decline at all among black voters, even though this is for the most part an uncontested primary. Uh, they still seem to have a very strong presence in Detroit. They showed out for Biden. So I don't, sense that there's some imminent breakaway of black voters from Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. They've always been very strong and supportive of him in his quest to be president. So I don't expect there's going to be much change there. Uh, and uh, before we move, leave the Democrats and go to the Republicans, uh, give us your sense of how uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer and uh, President Joe Biden sort of play to voters uh, to Democratic voters in Michigan. You know, so much of the attention is how Biden's in trouble. I don't hear that addressed toward Whitmer. Go ahead. Yes. So there's very different approval ratings for both of them in the state. Joe Biden is usually so hovering somewhere around the high 30s to low 40s for his approval rating, usually somewhere around like 37 to 43%, something like that. Whereas Gretchen Whitmer is like, it's almost like a flipped approval. Her approvals are usually in the high fifties, um, you know, 55 to 60% approval ratings. I, I think there's probably a bunch of different reasons for that, but, um, you know, Whitmer doesn't have the same age question that Biden does. I think a, a big part of it is that I think voters have on the ground been able to appreciate Whitmer in her first term as working with the Republican legislature where she was working to get bipartisan stuff done, like fixing the roads and all that, but also stopping their worst impulses. Um, she's been handed a Democratic legislature for her second term, where she has been able to pursue a lot of great agenda items, like removing the anti-abortion law that they had on the books, uh, passing protections for LGBTQ people, um, hate crimes legislation for them. Um, repealing right to work was a huge thing. They'd had right to work on the books for almost 15 years at this point. Um, there's a lot of different stuff that they've been pushing through under her uh, tenure as governor. And so I think some of it might be 
folks having an appreciation for the state legislature, getting a lot of stuff done for the state and feeling like the federal government isn't as much. And so it's possible that state level figures are just getting higher approval ratings than federal folks because they feel like their state is working for them more than the federal government. And there's also, uh, this is me speaking, the illogic of voters. Uh, no, uh, it, it always weighs in, particularly here in the city of Chicago. Uh, all right, let's um, uh, move to uh, the Republican uh, results from uh, Tuesday. Uh, Donald Trump was victorious, uh, and uh, uh, Nikki Haley got roughly 26% of the vote. Uh my sense is that spells trouble for Donald Trump in November, much as the uncommitted vote shows trouble uh, for Joe Biden. What's your thoughts? I think that it is worth emphasizing that, you know, on one side we have Joe Biden clearing 80 percent his primary and it, that's treated as troubling. You know, we, we um, it's, it's worth discussing the issues that he's having with voters in Detroit and Hamtramck and Ann Arbor. But it is worth emphasizing that by and large, like rule of thumb, if you're an incumbent getting over 80% in your primary, your party is generally unified behind you. You don't have a lot to work to worry about. When you look at the Republican primary, by contrast, where Donald Trump is getting 68%, the way, the way I would generally frame it is if you're above 80%, you're good to go. If you're between 70 and 80%, you should be good to go, but you need to be careful about fractures within your party base, because if your opponent's getting into the 20s and 30s, that usually indicates that there's some kind of fracture in the base that you need to be working on uh, fixing as you go into the general election. Once you start getting down to the 60s and especially the 50s, that that could pretend that you're going to be having general election problems because your own party's base isn't behind you. And I think that for the purposes of each of the party primaries, I think we need to think of both Biden and Trump as the incumbents because they have the name recognition. They have the track record. Everybody in both parties knows who both of these guys are. They've known who these guys are for half a century now. There's nothing new to learn about Joe Biden or Donald Trump. There's nothing new to talk about. So this is just, this is basically just a raw approval rating of each of them in each state. And I think when you're seeing a situation where Nikki Haley is getting almost 27% of the vote against him, no, she's not within striking distance of taking the nomination away from him, but she is within striking distance enough to cause damage for him, especially in certain uh, constituencies, especially suburban and highly educated areas, because she was winning um, many more constituencies than we were seeing with the uncommitted vote in the Democratic primary. Yeah. And uh, here's my rough and raw interpretation. Uh, and then I'll get your response to it. So when I look at that uncommitted vote uh, for in the Biden in the primary with the Democrats, I'm thinking uh, with the exception of Hamtramck uh, and maybe Dearborn, that vote at worst for Biden, those voters will just not vote. You know, they'll leave that president blank and go vote for the down ballot ones. When I look at that 26, 27% vote that Nikki Haley got, there's a chance that uh, a, a chunk of those voters will actually vote for Joe Biden over Trump, you know? Uh, and um, so that's a significant force for Trump. Your thoughts on my interpretation? I think that you're on the money with that. So 
when we look at the data, I've seen it estimated that maybe about six to seven percent of voters in these Republican primaries throughout these states are Democrats. And then there's another somewhere like 20, 30 percent or so are independent voters that have kind of gone both ways. I suspect personally that a lot of those voters, especially the Democratic ones and a lot of these independents, are people who identified pretty firmly as Republicans in the pre-Trump era, if we go back a decade or more to like McCain-Romney voters. I think that those folks have become Democrats in the Trump era, but they're going back into the Republican Party to emphasize, you know, we're still out here. Trump does not speak for the the values of the Republican Party that I knew. Um, So I think that those voters are out there and those that chunk of people will be voting for Joe Biden in the general. I'm very curious to see how these independent voters especially shake out because I think for the most part, the people who identify as like Rockford Republicans, they're pretty much exhausted in terms of the anti-Trump folks. They're out. But when we look at some of the municipal results in Michigan in this primary, we see that Nikki Haley actually won outright in uh, Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, uh, East Lansing, outside the capital, that's where uh, Michigan State University is. Um, even some of the northwest part of the lower peninsula, some of my friends have colloquially referred to it as the Cherry Coast up that way. Lots of um, old school, wealthy, socially moderate Republicans up that way, like Traverse City up in there. Um, highly educated, relatively higher income areas. Those are the kinds of places where Nikki Haley excelled. And those are the areas that Trump should be most worried about losing votes to Joe Biden from the Republican base. They don't really have much of a home in the Republican Party these days, and the Democratic Party's been making uh, overtures to them to win over their vote. There are even a couple communities in Oakland County, again, some of these higher educated, wealthier suburbs northwest of Detroit. Um, she won a couple of places in there, I believe, too. So long story short, I think Insofar as Biden has faced any issues in the primary, it's a couple, you know, specific cities or neighborhoods here and there. Um, Whereas in the case of Donald Trump, I think we've seen a broad-based continuing suburban resistance to him. When we saw the South Carolina results, um, you know, Nikki Haley was pulling a ton of suburban votes out of Charleston, um, you know, in some of the northwest parts of the state. And a lot of those voters knew who she was, but we're, we're seeing these suburban problems continuing for Trump. And so his, as he goes in the general election, I think that that's going to be his main concern is trying to win some of those voters back. Uh, and uh, so here are the two overriding questions, uh, in my humble opinion, for both parties, the challenges uh, coming out of Michigan. Uh, I'll put them to you uh, and then you respond. Uh, for Biden, it is, uh, can Biden win without Michigan? So Michigan was decided, I forget, 10,000 votes, I want to say, the last time. I can't remember. Uh, but if you, uh, when when Biden defeated um, uh, Trump in 2020, uh, it was a close, whatever it was. Uh, so if you flip voters, if you take away uh, the, those uncommitted voters uh, and you have Trump getting more voters uh, out of the Hamtramck and Dearborn area, uh, Michigan goes to Trump. 
can Biden still win an electoral college victory without Michigan? If you take Michigan out of his column and put it in the Trumps. Uh, and then the challenge for Trump is, can Trump win the uh, electoral college victory without Haley voters? If you take Michigan and South Carolina and every primary, actually, uh, as uh, an indication of his Trump's weakness, can Trump win if those Haley voters go to Biden? So your thoughts on both of those questions? Yes. So uh, in the case of the Michigan general election in 2016, Trump won the state by about 10,000 votes. I think a lot of folks consider that one the big fluke of that election, kind of like Indiana 2008. And then Joe Biden ended up winning it by about 150,000 votes in the 2020 election. So when we look at kind of how these primary results are giving clues to how things are shaping up, I don't think that the situation in some communities like Dearborn and Hamtramck, I don't think that that would influence the election outside of a Florida 2000 situation where you've got like 500 votes, you know, splitting up the election. I think that the bigger concern will probably be, like I mentioned, you know, some of these suburban or highly educated areas that uh, Trump is bleeding to Nikki Haley at the moment. I think it would be very tricky to envision a scenario where Biden is winning without Michigan. Um, you know, he'd, he'd need to be holding down other states like Arizona, Georgia, that are a bit to the right of those states. Like he, he would have to dramatically improve those states, make them to the left of Michigan. And in one election cycle, I think that would be very tough. And so Michigan, um, I don't necessarily want to call it a must win state, but it's tough for me to think of a situation where he would win without Michigan. And in terms of your second question, I think that um, Nikki Haley is kind of, it's almost like she's kind of sticking around long enough to show where Trump is weak geographically and then kind of giving the hints to either the Democrats or people who come after to show like, this is where you can kind of hit him and snag votes here and there to take him out. Cause he's already at a situation where he's, he only, he's only ever getting like 46% of the vote. He's never clawing toward a majority. And the first one was, um, almost almost like a, a black swan event, as you would call it, like this this uh, chance encounter of history that wasn't really anticipated by anybody, least of all his campaign. And last time it didn't work out, period. And so he needs to be finding ways to gain votes. And in the primary, all we're seeing is that he's losing votes. So if he's bleeding more and more support out of suburbs beyond what he did in 2016, beyond what he did in 2020, I think that he's going to have a very difficult time uh, getting the presidency again. Yeah, I agree. And, and thank you for correcting me. That was a, uh, yes, uh, it was Trump who won by 10,000. That was a big correction. Folks, listen to what Andrew said, not me, but that initial point. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, so I would say overall, uh, one of the differences, the way election results are read has to do with the style, we'll close with this, of the candidates. Donald Trump is all about bravado, chest thumping, bragging. He uh, he learned so much from uh, his days with the Wrestling Federation. And that's how 
if you follow professional wrestling at all, I don't know if you do, Andrew, uh, then you, you, Donald Trump is straight up. That's where he learned it all. Uh, and you, everything is a great victory. You're always the champ. Uh, you're always whooping the other side. They're always cowards, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, Joe Biden is a totally different political animal. Democrats in general uh, are usually in a fetal position. They're always worried about the worst thing that can happen. They still have not gone over 2016 in so many ways. Andrew, if you know any Democrats, I know you do. You understand that it's like a fear in their minds about 2016. And so, so much of the election results out of Michigan, uh, the way they're being read can be understood, if you follow me, by those two different styles. Bravado versus fetal position. That's how I'll just... Uh, and I, listen, I'm not hating on the fetal position thing because I, I make fun of the Democrats all the time for this, but if that's what gets your people out, who am I to say? You follow what I'm saying, Andrew? Uh, if, that, that, if that's what works, scaring people... Um, whereas Donald Trump will never change. So he's always going to be thumping his chest. Uh, so that's my closing thoughts. And I'll allow you to floor to, uh, to make any closing thoughts you would uh, like to make about lessons to be learned from Michigan. Go ahead. I think fundamentally this election is kind of a choice between liberal democracy and right-wing nationalism. I think it's a lot more clear cut than it was in the 2016 or 2020 elections. That's always what was at stake, but I don't know that it's always fully sunk in with the electorate. I think we have eight months ahead of us of campaigning. And like I said, there is nothing new to learn about Joe Biden or Donald Trump. We have had half a century of them both in the national spotlight. We have uncovered just about everything that is to be uncovered about them. And so I don't know if folks are ready to talk for eight months about people they already said everything about, but that's what we have. And, um, and I think that the, in that sense, I think the election is going to be about more than just those two guys because they're two stand-ins for um, these two very divergent paths. Every election is that way, but I think especially in this case, um, people are really going to be reckoning with um, – do, do we have a liberal democracy where we're regularly selecting our leaders every couple of years? Um, does the rule of law still apply in America as it has for all this time, or at least as long as we've said it's applied? Um, how are we going to conduct ourselves internationally? Um, are we going to be supporting authoritarian despots like Russia, or are we going to be uh, supporting democracies and even aspiring democracies um, throughout the world? How are we going to conduct ourselves in military operations like what we've been seeing um, in Gaza with Israel? You know, there's there's a lot of thorny questions and there's a case to be made that the international order is resetting in a lot of different ways. And it's going to give voters a lot to think about in this election because we always say that every election is the most important election in history. But I think when I, when I think back to the various elections of my lifetime, this really feels like kind of a decisive pivot point in terms of what kind of country we're going to be. So my hope is that the Biden campaign will be engaging in outreach to voters who are not feeling great about his candidacy right now and seeing what he can do to act on their concerns right now, you know, whether it's concerning Gaza, whether it's concerning 
um, debt or climate or different things like that, acting right now to address concerns and earning the votes of these voters so that as we get up to the final deadline in November, we'll have ideally a strong pro-democracy coalition that's going to stand up for the needs of everyday people who want government to work on their behalf. Very well stated. I, I got to think, I may have overstated how young you are. Uh, let me, so I'll, I'll close with this question. Have you ever had the opportunity to vote uh, in a presidential election when Donald Trump was not on the ticket? Very barely. I, I turned, uh, <laughs> I, I, I turned, well, uh, off, the, off the top of your head, if you had to throw out a number, how old would you guess I am? That's kind of a parlor game I play when I get carded. So. I, I mean, you look so young. Well, folks, you can't see them. Uh, if I if I just met you, I would think you were 24. Uh, you have a baby face. I don't know if, if you're insult. I didn't mean to insult you by saying that, but you do. It's sort of like Steve Kerr when he used to play for the Bulls. Uh, and um, so, if you're 24, okay, that means that's what that's why I I, I thought you may not have been born when. Um, that's why I said that. And I really, as soon as I said, it, I go, no, he was definitely born. He looks, he's older than he looks. Uh, and so as I say, was he born when Gore Bush happened? So based on what you just said, I would say you're probably 28. I don't, and I, and I, you look younger than that. Go ahead. That's what you are. Well, thank you. Uh, I turn 30 in eight days. So, uh, dang man, you're the youngest looking 30 year old I ever seen. <laughs> Well, thank you. Very well. Happy birthday prematurely. Uh, so let me do the math. Uh, great moments in math. Uh, 1994, 18 and 94, 6, 12. Oh, you, you, uh, you could have voted uh, in 2012. That's exactly right. Uh, that is correct. My, 2012. My, my, very first, your state. My, my, my very first vote I ever cast was for uh, Barack Obama in the 2012 primary. And it didn't do any good. Oh, in the in the primary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In there, there was nothing else but, uh, contested on the ballot, so I was just doing my civic duty. So. Yes, uh, but uh, in the general election, two thousand and twelve, Indiana went um, Republican. I still to this day don't know how Obama won it in two thousand and eight, but that's a whole other subject for another time. How Indiana went for Obama in two thousand and eight? Uh, <laughs> um, I wow, I I still can't. You have any? Is there anything you could say, like a sentence or two, to indicate what was in the air in 2008 that Indiana went for Obama? Oh, I mean, it's a lot of things. I think a huge thing that helped was that it, there was such a contested primary between Obama and Hillary. But both both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton both came to my hometown in Kokomo, Indiana. There's a photo of me. You think I look young now. I've got a photo of me when I was 14. <laughs> at his right. I, I look like I'm just out the womb. And I think... Because Indiana, we have a early May primary. Normally, we don't matter because all the stuff gets settled in March. But it ran so long that they both had these barnstorming campaigns through Indiana. They both, in the week before the primary, came to Kokomo, Indiana. Nobody ever comes to Kokomo, Indiana. That's wild. Yeah. And so I, I think having having that on-the-ground presence for any campaign makes a huge difference. Fair enough. Uh, actually, somebody else came to Kokomo, Indiana, and I always mention this when you're in the show. Aretha Franklin came to Kokomo, Indiana. Look it up, ladies and gentlemen. One of the greatest songs she ever wrote about Kokomo, Indiana. First uh, all right, Andrew. Oh, sorry. 
first I, I'm always, I was stunned when he when he told me that. He told me he was from Kokomo in the first conversation. I go, did you know that Aretha Frank? I, I didn't think there would be a way in the world he would know that. And he knew it. I'm like, well, your mother tell you something. And, and, and everybody else uh, I ever talked to, they, they bring up the Beach Boys. I'm like, if I had a quarter for every time I uh, you you're the first one who said first known Kokomo. I was like, thank you. That was actually about my <laughs> Great song. Folks, if you get nothing else out of this podcast episode, go listen to that. It is just a great song. Aretha wrote it. Uh, it's just a beautiful song. And it's really, uh, I'm going to go listen to it when we, we're done. I'm going to put on that record. All right, Andrew, thank you very much. It's always a blast talking politics with you. And uh, I'll look forward to our next conversation. All right. Absolutely. All right. That's Andrew Ellison. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care.